Brethren, we have a remarkable God. He's a God that cares for us. He's the God that has done things for us. He's the God that has turned our world upside down. And He's a God who is no respecter of persons. He's a God who will use the weakest of men for the most glorious of purposes. As we've seen in our studies over these last few weeks. With men like Elijah and Elisha. With Paul, such a humble preacher of God's word. With Esther, the most unlikely of women to have been thrust into the position of power of being the first the first queen of the Persian Empire well today we're going to look at another humble man from humble beginnings we're going to look at his God at the God of Jacob and if you will turn to Isaiah chapter 41 verse 14 the Lord when speaking to the nation of Israel his descendants he said fear not Thou worm, Jacob. How interesting that is to us to hear. Many years ago, long, long time ago in the galaxy far, far away, I was a genealogist for about five minutes. And not every family that came in had their own crest. So you'd have to make up a crest for them. And as you can imagine, they'd want a dragon, an elephant, a lion, a tiger. Not once. Not once, strangely enough, did one of them come in and say, I'd like to have a little worm on my, cl- on my crest. Just a little worm. Because we're proud he- people. We're proud humans. We like to think great things of ourselves. And what does, God, what does God say to the nation of Israel? Thou worm, Jacob. But he also says, fear not. You see, God remains our king. Amen. God looks after us. He takes care of us. And he reminds Jacob, the nation of Israel, that they have no strength outside of God. And yet God will sustain him, just as God sustained their ancestor Jacob. In Isaiah 49 verse 26 we read, I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now what a combination we have here. Thou worm Jacob, the mighty one of Jacob, the worm united to omnipotence. The creature most likely to be squished beneath the feet of a larger creature is protected by almighty God. Israel was a tiny little nation. A small country, it still is. Takes up less than 1% of the Middle East. And yet, yet, thousands of years ago, did God forsake them even when they forsook him? No. God taught them. God sent them into exile. Exiled the idolatry out of them. But God did not forsake his covenant even though they forsook him. What is so weak and worthless as a worm? And what is so mighty as the mighty one of Jacob? And this tells the story, not of Jacob himself, but of Jacob's God. Not of the man, but the all-sufficient, almighty God. Who takes care of us. In our own weaknesses. With his infinite fullness. We have seen a little of the resources of God in the accounts of Elijah and Elisha. And I always say account, for this isn't Tarzan. This isn't a story, this is an account. 
And the account, the biblical accounts of Elijah and Elisha and the life of Paul, we've seen remarkable things. We've seen the hand of God's providence within their lives. But someone might say that all this might well occur in lives so lofty and sublime, but can I, as a weak and worthless man, reach such heights of victory and glory outside of Christ and have them be of any worth, any worthiness whatsoever? Alexander of Macedon, known as the Lion of Macedon, or Alexander the Great, he died around 33 years of age, around the same, the same age as our Lord suffered and died. Alexander thought that he was the son of their God, the son of the chief of their God, Zeus. And you dared not tell him he wasn't. And yet for all of his glory, for all of the battles that he won, he died like any man. And he couldn't face it. His pride was killing him. I cannot die like any ordinary man. Oh no, Alexander tried to get to the river to throw himself into it, to float down so people would say that he had been risen to Mount Olympus by Zeus himself. They found him going. Alexander, for all of his glory, died like a worm on his belly. And he did not rise from the dead. But Christ Jesus rose from the dead. The nation of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, were waiting for a mighty warrior to come. They were waiting for a Messiah that would kill the Romans, that would ride into Rome and pin the emperor to his chair with the spear. Yet that wasn't the, the Messiah that God had promised. The Messiah that God had promised would bring a message of hope, of love, some good news, the best news. Amen. That even the emperor would learn. He had the right to reject it or accept it. But Jesus didn't come to slaughter millions. He came to save the souls of the whole of humanity. If only, if only we would humble ourselves before the real King of Kings, before the one who truly is mighty, before the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and surrender our pride, bend our hearts, our knees to the King of Kings. So now we're going to turn to the life of a weak and a worthless man, so that we may know that God uses such men to make them the peculiar illustrators of his own grace and his all-sufficiency. This one lesson of Jacob's life is a lesson of sovereign grace. And let us remember that we as Christians are under sovereign grace, the grace of the sovereign, our King. We have already seen that this was one lesson in Paul's life and that his deepest thought and highest testimony was not I, but Christ lives in me. You see, all glory must go to God and not to ourselves. If ever where there was a man that deserved to be called a worm, it was the supplanting son of Isaac. And yet this was the man whom God selected from among all the patriarchs to be head of Israel's tribes and to be the real founder of the covenant people to whom was committed the oracles of God and from whom the Messiah would come. So therefore Jacob is more especially fitted to, to set forth the grace of God than any other of the Bible characters. And let us look at the lessons which his life illustrates with respect to the resources of our God. We see in Jacob's life the God who can choose and use unworthy and unattractive lives and characters. 
Had we been choosing on natural principles between the two sons of Isaac, we, we probably would have preferred the big-hearted and impulsive Isaac, this hunter, a heroic character. His father Isaac certainly preferred Esau. And he tried his best to hold for him the tribal blessing and the divine birthright, that he would become the leader of his people. You see, there was little naturally in Jacob that was attractive. He represented that type of human, happily, by no means all, who have become the embodiment of the hard, keen, grasping man, the man who seems to have become crystallized into a financial machine and bargain counter. Jacob was intensely selfish. He was deceitful. He was disposed to take advantage of another's misfortune. There's no type of human nature that by the common consent of mankind is more detestable than that of the hard, cold, heartless miser. He is lower even than the groveling sensualist in the scale of humanity. He took advantage of his father's weakness to gain advantage in his own life. And yet God chose this man in order to prove that there is no class of humanity, no one so hard, so hopeless, so selfish, to not be in the reach of sovereign grace. Indeed, that God loves a hard case. And that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Romans 5, verse 20. If there is a soul hearing this who is discouraged about himself, you think you're unworthy of God's love, remember Jacob. And then remember Jacob's God. The one that could use a worm and make him a prince with God and with men. He changed his name to Israel. Prince of God. He changed his name. The one that could choose this worm and make him a prince can change your life and make you his own dear child. The one who is still saying God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 27 is still reaching out to us this day. You're not too far gone for the grace of God. Do not let your pride get in the way of him. And then the God of Jacob is a God that can discern elements of good and possibilities of the highest things in the most unlikely of lives. When we think about when God took the throne of Israel away from King Saul, he sent the prophet Samuel to Jesse and along his sons, he, he told him, bring out your sons. And they lined up and, and, and the, the prophet went down each son saying, which one God had chosen. And he was looking at the eldest son, strong and powerful, muscular. He must have been thinking, this has to be him. No. What about the next one? No. The next one? No. Have you any sons left? He asked Jesse. And he said, oh, I've won. He's out there somewhere minding the sheep. The runt of the litter, the smallest, the little one, the one all the other brothers picked upon. Yet he was the one whom God chose. See, God doesn't see as we see. God looks into our hearts. We're not too far gone. At the back of Jacob's meanness, there was something that had in it inherently the elements of power and blessing. Something there God seen that he could use. Something there that was wonderful. 
What was it about Jacob that redeemed him in God's sight? That made him think that, hmm, I can use this one. He didn't appear to be noble. His brother Esau's apparent nobility was definitely there. But it's not without reason that God said of these two men, in Romans 9 verse 13, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. What was it in Jacob that God loved? What was it in him that became a point of contact with his grace? It was that element which we might call the spiritual. It was the peculiar insight into the higher things which discerns and chooses what is best. It is the kind of intuition, a spiritual instinct, instinct, the germ, in fact, of a higher nature. It enabled Jacob to discover, to appreciate, and to desire intensely all that was meant in the divine birthright. While on the other hand, the lack of it led Esau to despise this. All he cared about was his immediate gratification. That's all he wanted. Oh, Esau was a splendid animal, but that was all. He wasn't thinking about the future. He was just interested in right now. What can I get for me right now? He was hungry. He wanted food. And he cared not how he got it. He had not the power to comprehend or prize the higher blessing. Which was by his own birth a natural right. In the hour of his hunger we find him exclaiming in Genesis 25:32 Behold I am at the point to die and what profit shall this birthright do to me That was the very time when it should have meant the most to him for it secured to him the favor of his covenant god but that didn't matter as much as filling his belly right there and then It would have secured him a part among God's covenant people and the high honour of standing at the front of the line that was to lead up to the promised seed of the coming Messiah. While it had the highest natural dignities and privileges connected to it, it was preeminently spiritual in its meaning and value, and that didn't mean anything to a man full of fleshly lusts such as Esau. Esau, realising none of these things, recklessly and blindly threw it away for a mess of pottage. The sacred water crystallizes into a single sentence, the meaning. The sacred writer crystallizes into the message, this simple meaning. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Genesis 25, 34. He despised his birthright. He despised the promise of God for what he wanted right now. Now what God loved in Jacob was the quality that appreciated, that desired, and chose the higher things of God. God loved him for it, and God came to meet him and gave him what he desired. They have their reward, is the awful sentence of Christ upon disobedient humanity. And certainly Esau had his reward then, and he lost his birthright. He lost that preeminence. And even though his descendants became a nation, they were constantly at war with his brother's descendants. What a terrible tragedy. Men and women generally get what they want, don't they? If they're after earthly things, they will probably find them. But if they seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6.33... 
They which do hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. Matthew 5, verse 6. It is often true that the worst and the best are closely akin in human nature. The most encouraged and discouraged people in the world are the ones who either turn to God or away from him. And sinful man is often so sinful because the devil has seen his folly and has perverted the bud into a thorn. You'll find plenty of help if you seek sin. God sees everything through the crust of evil, though. He sees right through their plans. And he comes to meet and satisfy the yet undimmed jewel of some deep and earnest longing for better things. And that's what Jacob was longing for. There had to be something better. Esau didn't see it. Esau didn't care. But Jacob seen something. It is comforting to know that we have a God who is not looking for the evil in us, but for the good that is trying to find some point of contact with better things. Looking in every human soul for some place where the chain of mercy can fasten and lift us up to the skies. Dear friend, if you're far away from God and conscious of your utter unworthiness, there is one question we would ask you. Would you have God's love for your heart? Would you choose his will if it were offered to you, his blessing, or would you turn it away for a season in sin? Would you part with everything to have the best and highest of things? Then, you have that which God loved in Jacob and that which will search after God until it finds him. In the third instance, we see Jacob's God as one who can reveal himself to a soul that is utterly ignorant of, <coughs> ignorant of him. When Jacob went out from his father's house and his mother's arms, he had indeed set his heart on the highest things as far as he knew them, and he won by a very unworthy transaction, the covenant. But as yet he knew nothing of God in his own experience. We see this in his confession in Bethel's cave. In Genesis 28:16, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. We see also the lack of all brotherly love and confidence. How dreadful is this place? It was a raw, unenlightened, natural heart shrinking from the presence of God that was in Jacob, knowing nothing of trust and love. But to that poor, dark, lonely heart, God came and gave himself. He made himself known by that vision of divine light and revelation, which became not only to him, but to all coming generations, a ladder reaching to heaven from the lowest, loneliest spot. If you remember that account, Jacob had a dream of that ladder. An 18th century pilgrim on his journey to the Holy Land wrote, Well do I remember the day that I rode along the bridal path that leads to the ruins of ancient Bethel, stopping from time to time at the numerous caves along the road and wondering in which of them Jacob lay down with a stone upon his head. There's the stone for a pillow for his head. On the first night of his absence from his home, my guide pointed across the valley and he said, this is the cave where Jacob slept. Because yonder you can see on the rock hillside the great lodges of stone rising one above the other like mighty steps. And in the dim moonlight, 
You know it seemed to Jacob like a ladder that reached to heaven. Genesis 28:18. The man writes, you see, my guide was an accomplished higher critic. He was critical of God's word, trying to find a naturalistic explanation for a supernatural event. The doubters of God's word are many. They think they can explain the Bible without any supernatural element. But this is not so. You see, the ladder Jacob saw was not of that bold ledge of ascending rocks. They do not go that high. But it was that invisible stair which your faith and mine has often seen since, searching from our helplessness to his high heaven and bringing down the angels of God with messages of hope, of help and blessing. That was the time when Jacob first met with God. There comes such an hour in every redeemed life. You've known about him. You had chosen him. You had set your heart upon him. But he had never yet become a real fact in your life. You had never surrendered all to him. You had never trusted him with all your heart and soul. With all your being. You had sought for naturalistic explanations for supernatural things. But one night of loneliness. One hour of deep trouble. Some crisis when you were forced to pray. When you found God had become revealed to you when you read the word and you've seen his promises you've seen the truth that is contained within God's word there's nothing like it he is the one with whom you have to do he is the one with whom you have to make a covenant with and friend he is the one who is saying to you as you did to Jacob behold I am with you and will keep you in all places wheresoever you go for I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to you Genesis 20, 28 and verse 15 God keeps his promises he promises to save us from hell he promised to redeem us from sin and that is done so in the Lord Jesus Christ and in none other and it is in your gift to choose him it is his to make himself known, and it is his eternal promise. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. Hosea 6 verse 3. When we read the word of God, will we choose to obey the gospel or reject it? Will we follow the king of kings or will we deny him? There is no other choice. When we become Christians, we become joint heirs of all God's promises. We become children of God. That is a birthright that anyone with a sane mind would seek to attain. Unlike Jacob, there's no need for any kind of shook and jive to get it. It's there for us. And it was bought with a terrible price. A great many people think that they are worthless. They are worth nothing. Even though we are as worms compared to God, he still tells us to fear not. He still brings us that good news. He still offers us forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ and through none other. And he will fulfill his promises. We must make our covenant with him. And he will not break it. In the fourth place, the God of Jacob is one who follows his children even through years of imperfection and wandering while they are often far away from him. 
For Jacob went forth from that Bethel vision, a new man and a man of God, but still full of the old selfish, supplanting spirit. And so we see him following his own devices, fighting his own battles, intriguing with, with Laban and trying to match his cunning with equal cunning. We see him bargaining for a wife and, having, and losing in the first transaction. We see him later getting the better of his uncle and finally through deep strategy leaving the land of his temporary adoption, possessed of boundless riches. And yet he was the same old Jacob in many ways. But he had not forsaken God. He had prayed often. He had realized he was a work in progress and God realizes that too about us. He had asked God to prosper him in his business deals. But still it was Jacob, the worm Jacob, the selfish supplanting man. But God did not leave him all these years. He followed him. He loved him. He blessed him. He prospered him. And in due time he called him back to better things. And so, dear child of God, he has followed you even amid your wanderings. Even when you are lost. Even when you are suffering from persecutions from darkness infecting your lives, from sin niggling away at you, trying to rob you of the riches of the blessings in Christ Jesus. He has not let you go. go. He has not wanted you where you were. And he has not left you alone. He is still there for you. As long as there is breath in your body and sense in your mind, you can still turn to God. As God went with Israel through the wilderness, so he has gone with you on the weary road of your life. In all your affliction, he has been afflicted. God still loves his imperfect children. He does not forsake them in their mistakes and follies, but he is still a God of infinite long-suffering, boundless patience, and tender fatherly pity. He is full of compassion this should not encourage us to live short of our highest privileges it should not encourage us to chase after sin but it should lead us to the grateful love grateful love and knowledge that following him more closely leads to great blessings and we should choose his highest will for us his best life for us then we see in Jacob's God one who at last knew how to bring the pressure that led Jacob to the crisis of his life. The time had come for a new and deeper experience, so God led him back toward his ancient home. And <laughs> it is the old Jacob coming back. He is enlarged with flocks and herds and a great household, but we see Jacob all through his wise forethought, his infinite contriving to protect his family and his flocks. And when he finds his incensed brother Esau coming to meet him with an armed guard, he exhausts all the resources of his skill, all the resources of his invention, to get away from him or to defend himself from him. He's sure that Esau is coming to take vengeance upon him for what he took from him. So Jacob divides his family and he divides his flock into little bands so that even if one of them is stricken, the other will escape. And at last he realizes how vain it all is. And he is thrown absolutely and helplessly upon the mercy and power of Almighty God. The way narrows to a lone path where only two can walk. 
And here the path is God and Jacob. There just across the brook Jabba and under the solemn stars of the Orient, Jacob came face to face with the crisis of his life. He must either go down or go higher. It is either God or ruin. And so the religious instinct turns heavenward. Jacob prays as he has never prayed before. We must never forget prayer. We must never forget in the conflicts that surround us. When we have time to worry and be afraid, we have time to pray. It is the best thing we can do for a Christian is never more strong than when he or she is upon their knees in prayer to their God. But there is another conflict. God is wrestling with Jacob more than Jacob was wrestling with God. We are told significantly that there wrestles a man with him until the breaking of the day, Genesis 32, 24. After God wrestled with him, the old Jacob was not the same. God had prevailed and Jacob fell and his thigh was dislocated. But as he fell, he fell into the arms of God. And there he clung and wrestled too until the blessing came. And the new life was born and he arose from the earthly to the heavenly, the human to the divine, the natural to the supernatural. And he went forth that morning. When he went forth that morning, he was a weak and broken man. But God was there instead. And the heavenly voice proclaimed, Your name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince have you power with God and with men and have prevailed. Beloved, this must be a typical scene in every transformed life. We must stay in contact with God. When things are tearing at us, when our hearts are being ripped apart, when we're in that darkness, hold on to God until the darkness goes away. When we're going through the valley, walk through the valley with God until you're at the end of it. And light prevails. There comes a crisis hour in each of us if God has called us to the highest and the best that we would be in our lives. And when all our resources fail, when we face either ruin or something bigger than we have ever dreamed, then we must have infinite help from God. And yet before we can have it, we must let something go. And it is hard to let it go. It is hard to not see ourselves as a lion or a dragon or a bear and see ourselves as a worm totally dependent absolutely dependent upon God we must surrender completely we must cease from our own wisdom our own strength and righteousness and become crucified with Christ and alive in him God knows how to lead us up to this crisis and he knows how to lead us through he has given us the gospel call he has explained quite simply what we must do in order to be saved. And we can either say, yes, I will obey, or no, I reject you. If we reject God, then why are so many so surprised to learn that he will reject us? God will give us the victory if we turn to him. For our God is the same God that gave the victory to Esther. 
is the same God who gave the victory to Paul. He's the same God of the prophets, the apostles, and all true Christians. So we must cast ourselves at his feet and remember our position. We must die to our strength and our own wisdom and place ourselves in his loving arms and then rise like Jacob into his strength and all sufficiency. No matter what the hardest trials might be, he is there with us. And what would we be without the living God? See, the God of Jacob will protect us. See, there are some things which God can only do through the process of time. There are processes of grace that need to be carried through long years of discipline. There is a slow fire which dissolves and consumes as no furnace heat can ever do in the moment of time. There is God who sits and he is a refiner and a purifier of silver through the long years, furnishing his work until he can see his image in the molten metal. This is the God of Jacob. And so through the 40 years that followed, he led Jacob through the longest, slowest and hardest of trials. And how keen was the pain, how sensitive the spirit that he touched. And so he comes to you, my friends, in the place that hurts you the most. Often it is our heart's deepest affections. Think of poor Jacob. His beloved wife, Rachel, died. His family pride was wounded in the dishonor of his daughter. Joseph, Rachel's son, was torn from his presence amid scenes and associations of unspeakable horror. He thought his son had been killed. The years dragged out their slow length with that haunting shadow of suspense and agony, until at last he cried, All these things are against me. Genesis 42 and verse 36. But all the while, Jacob was being burned up, and God was being burned in. All the many human fears were being burned away, and the sure knowledge that God who is with us will never forsake us was being burned in. And when at last we meet him in the calm sunset of this life, we hear the rash, self-confident man saying something he would not have learned otherwise. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Genesis 49, verse 18. And we see the sorrow. We see the sorrows at last turn into joy. We see the shadows pass away. We hear the evening song of a victorious life. The God which fed me all my life long. The angel which redeemed me from all evil. Genesis 48 and verse 15. It took that long to get it through to him. Don't rely upon your own strength. Rely upon the strength of Almighty God. He is there. We would be foolish not to turn to that resource, not to turn to the God who has shown in the lives of those saints of the Old Testament his providence, his providential care, his practical care. And we see that all our worry is in vain if we trust in the Lord our God. We should cast our worries before him. As he gets older, we see even Joseph given back and all the sor sorrow turned into joy 
while this blessed spiritual lesson remains forevermore in the transformed life of the venerable patriarch. So thus the God of Jacob knows how to try us and how to deliver us out of trial. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 7 we read, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, but that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The seventh point we will consider is that the God of Jacob is a God that loves to use the instrument that he has thus prepared. It was not Abraham, the mighty believer. It was not Isaac, the meek and gentle son. But it was Jacob, the transformed supplanter that God chose to be the head of Israel's tribes and the founder of his chosen people, of the Old Testament. It was this God who saved Jacob, who saves us. And Jacob on his dying bed pronounced the prophetic blessing upon his seed, which all the ages since have seen fulfilled. And so God will take our lives when he has prepared them in in proportion to what they have cost him. The degree of power that comes out of an element is measured by the degree that goes into it. We learn from our experiences in life. I've learned to never pray for patience because God will give you cause for patience. I've prayed to be patient with other people. I've prayed to understand that none of us are perfect. We are not angels, and we should not expect others to be so. We are all works in progress. And thank God, through providence, we have come together so that we can help one another, help one another grow, help one another trust in Almighty God, and realizing that we have the same Father, the same God, the same God who delivered Jacob The same God who delivered Moses and Israel. The same God who delivered Elijah and Elisha. The same God who came in the form of God the Son. Died on the cross for our sins. Rose from the dead the third day. Reigns in heaven forever. And who is coming back for us. If that doesn't give us inspiration. If that doesn't give us comfort when we're worrying. Nothing will. The mighty power that ran The steamer and the train came out of a coal mine. But all that power was put the coal mine, was just put in the coal mine ages ago by God. It first came down from heaven into the mines of the earth, and then went out from the mines of the earth in another form of the same power. Brethren, the gospel is a supernova of power. And it can change our lives from deep inside. It can change the world. In fact, it has. It's turned the world upside down. Instead of a message of war and hatred and convert or die, we have a message of love. A message of warning. The house is burning. But you have someone who can rescue you from that house. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That house is the house of sin. And in Hebrew, the word for sin is Beth Shan. A verb, repentance, is Beth Shan. 
And that means literally it carries with it the image of burn down the house of sin. But we need someone to rescue us and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter declared in Acts 2.38 to repent and be baptized every one of you for the remission of your sins. That means so you can be forgiven of your sins. For you're not forgiven of your sins before you're baptized. Paul wasn't. Paul prayed for three days straight after he got to Damascus. People think that he was, he was converted on the road to Damascus. Some people think that Paul was converted when he was on the horse or the camel or the donkey or when he fell or when he hit the ground. Brethren, it was noon. He was Jewish. He was standing and he was praying in the direction of Jerusalem when the light of the Lord fell upon him. But he was not saved then. He was not saved after three days of prayer. He was saved when he obeyed the call of the gospel to arise and be baptized. Wash away thy sin. It could not be clearer. The command of the Lord Jesus Christ is clear. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. These are the words of Almighty God. We go through hard trials in our life. But when the storm is at its roughest, then we hold on to the rock who will not be washed away. If only we could learn the lesson that Jacob did at the end of his life, at this moment in our lives, to cast our worries and our cares upon God. Because God is well and truly able to carry a worm such as I. God is well and truly able to carry each and every one of us. Don't get if give up your old sins, give up your pride, bend the knee to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Become one of His this day and find a birthright worthy of holding on to. If you're not a Christian this day and you need to be baptized so your sins can be washed away in His sight, we're here for you. And if you are a Christian and you need our prayers, our help for anything, we're here for you. We won't forsake you. And neither will the God of Jacob, of Abraham, of Isaac, the God of our salvation. As we stand and sing the song of invitation. All things are ready.